0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 236 brought to you in association with SMART and the And I'm delighted to be joined today by Chirag Shah, founder and CEO of Nucleus Commercial Finance, who lend to SMEs and were formed in 2011 to talk about the science and art of instant business lending decisions. Actually, here's a thought. Let's make it the shortest intro ever, as that seems fairly clear to me and hopefully to you. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Chirag. Thank you for joining me on the show today.
2: Hi, Mike. Great to be on the show.
1: And we almost did this sort of face-to-face and, and live, apart from my podcasting injury, which I bore the listeners about before, so we'll gloss over that. But you were in London a couple of weeks ago. You're, you're not in London now. So maybe you'd like to tell us where, where you are at the moment.
2: I'm in Mumbai. I can tell you, I don't know what the weather in London is right now, but I can tell you, Mumbai's shining. 28 degrees, the sun is out.
1: Ah, okay. Well, it's interesting actually, because we were talking before we started about uh, guests' um, challenges actually doing internet podcasts, one of which of course is technology, which we all know, so we'll gloss over that one. But uh, I mentioned that I've had two guests who during the show had a gas leak in their building and the, and the building was evacuated, which sort of rather gets in the way. But you had an, an original excuse last time, although we never actually managed to kick off, in that the uh, monsoon stopped play, as it were, or at least stopped the re- recording. So w- what happened on that day? I mean, how does, how does a monsoon, does it flood up to the 13th floor where you're at? Or did you couldn't you get out of your house without a boat?
2: Luckily, I could, it did come up to the 13th floor. And it, it, it was just a bad day. Generally, we get a lot of rain over the four months. And uh, it's, not, it's not constant. But you always have a couple of weeks during the four-month period where the rain is crazy. It just ended up being one of those days. I set out to get to the office, but I just couldn't make it. I decided to abandon halfway and hence couldn't do the podcast last time.
1: Ah, oh, I see. I always get a bit confused about monsoon because uh, whenever I've read about monsoon in India, it's always the monsoon, as you say, this period of time. But if you're planning a vacation somewhere like, oh, I don't know, Thailand, or Vietnam is more complicated. I think Thailand's a bit simpler because of the two coasts. But they've got the sort of southwestern monsoon and the southeastern monsoon. So how does the Indian monsoon, the Thai southwest and southeast monsoons all kind of relate? Or is it the same phenomenon which kind of morphs around a bit?
2: No, it's not the same. If you want to go to Bali, go in June. If you want to come to India, avoid June to September.
1: Right. So is it is it the same kind of Weather which moves around. I mean, in Western Europe, as you know, and this is what the problem of the UK is in terms of weather, there's this jet stream. And what happened this year has happened before, which is if the jet stream is quite low, then Britain basically gets Icelandic weather, which is sort of cloudy, wet, mild. If the jet stream is quite high, then we get sort of more continental weather and it's quite nice and sunny. But I must say that other than knowing that the sort of Himalayas are quite large mountains at the top of India, I don't quite know how the whole monsoon... uh, uh, patterns shift around the sort of South Asia and Southeast Asia as a whole. I mean, it doesn't make it up to China. Maybe that's because they're above the Himalayas.
2: Yeah, it, they wouldn't be in the same segment. Neither is Southeast. With India, it's different because we get winds from both sides. So you've got the Arabian Sea on the Western side and the Bay of Bengal on the East and Indian Ocean on the South. So we get the monsoon rains from the East and we get the monsoon rains from the West but they all come in at this time. Everything is between June to September.
1: Ah, OK. Yes, as you say, good time not to visit, although the the hot season in both India and uh, Thailand can be a little bit warm as well. So uh, moving on from the weather, I've talked about the weather on too many podcasts recently. <laughs> Obviously, my obsession <laughs> given this summer. Maybe we'd like to let listeners know, Chirang, about your career journey. I mean, how come you are here today? Uh, did you start off from a little boy wanting to be a not an engine driver or a train driver, but a, a founder CEO of, a, of a, a commercial lender, or was that something that sort of that gradually developed and you start in technology or in banking or management consulting what What's your history?
2: I don't remember a lot from when I was five years old, but I do remember I didn't want to be a banker. I wanted to be a pilot. as things moved on as I grew up, that thing changed. I ended up in finance it was by choice not by chance and uh, it's, uh, my background is I did my engineering and I've got a degree in engineering, math and finance. So in a way, I've, it's kind of tailor made for the FinTech world before FinTech really became a thing. So we started Nucleus 12 years ago now. Prior to that, my background is investment banking and hedge funds. So I've been in the finance space now for close to, say about 18 years have seen the good times pre-2007 credit crisis, have seen the challenging times post-2007, have been through the COVID period, and have seen how finance operates through all those different phases.
1: Interesting, one of the things in terms of the roots of FinTech around the world that we have never actually mentioned on the podcast, but thinking about it, it is one of the ones, which is that um, hedge funds, which everyone these days kind of knows what a hedge fund was, but in the early 90s, there weren't that many hedge funds as such but a lot of hedge funds were set up by traders who left investment banks and went and did their own things. And as a result, in terms of trying to get the edge on the competition, even from the pre-internet days, or perhaps the hedge funds really took off in the internet days, hedge funds were always very strong on using technology to get greater insights. So maybe hedge funds should be um, noted in the records as one of the foundational roots of, of fintech itself. i just more
2: structured, more focused, better use of technology. And you can say, yeah, fintechs are very similar. If we are compared, when we compare fintechs and banks and traditional players. That is where fintechs have an edge.
1: Excellent. So, what was it that led you one day to decide in Mumbai when you managed to succeed against the monsoon, or maybe it wasn't that time of year, to wake up and found Nucleus Commercial Finance?
2: Actually, I founded it when I was in London twelve years ago. So I was based in London. I, I only started spending more time in Mumbai over the last four years. Those are those based in London initial eight years of Nucleus. I was in the London office every day. I used to work for a fund pre-crisis, post-crisis. A lot of things changed. I have been in the lending space, and one of the key things, and I'm talking 2007 here. One of the key things was that in the UK market compared to markets like US, the banks were playing an outsized role. When you consider corporate lending, SME lending, the alternatives to banks were few and far between and were very inefficient. So that was really where the idea for Nucleus was born. I'd been through that journey, I'd been through with the funds trying to offer an alternative solution to banks, and I just felt that the way technology was growing, what was available in terms of data in the market, there was a better solution for SMEs, and a better approach on how SME requirements can be met. So that's when Nucleus was born. Nucleus, when we started really, the objective was to offer a true competitor or a true alternative to banks. And I always say with banks, there are three key components which we started focusing on at Nucleus. The relationship with businesses where The key is to understand what they need rather than just have a product which we can sell to them. We we developed multiple products so we could serve a wider array of businesses and really tailor make solutions for those businesses. And be able to deliver in an efficient manner and when we say efficient manner, it's actually worth looking at how the how the SME history has been with banks. And we don't need to go far back. I and mean, even if we go just like maybe 10 years back, an SME application with the banks will entail filling out multiple forms, submitting four to five different documents as part of the loan application. And after that, wait. That wait could be weeks, that wait could be months for a decision from the banks. You get a decision, a short decision from the bank, which is a year or an day, without much explanation. And whether you, which whatever the decision is, the impact on the business is significant because you need funds at time X. You're going to, even if you get the funds a significant time later, you haven't really achieved your goal.
1: Yes. And, and if you're applying for a loan and you get turned down by bank A, and the process takes a couple of weeks or so you then go to bank b and the process takes a few weeks and even if you eventually get finance you may be getting it just as the receivers are coming in to sort of take your furniture away and 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 things like that which is quite um slow and again it's obviously technology because pre-internet everything was done with sort of paper and uh, uh, i I remember uh, before word processors came in um, and everything was done by memos and, and and files and so it was as if uh, the, world, the world of finance operated at the speed of sound. And then, of course, computers come in and it operates at the uh, speed of light, as it were. So I do all too often waffle on in my introductions. So I've just found that uh, one of the deficiencies of having the, the London FinTech podcast, one of the shortest introductions ever, is that I, didn't, I haven't actually said very much. <laughs> so just to fill in that uh, gap... When you founded Nucleus Commercial Finance in 2011, which countries were you lending to SMEs in? And uh, you can tell us more in the dessert course of the show, uh, but which countries are you lending to SMEs in today?
2: I can give you an answer to both right now. We lend in UK. That's our only market. We focus on the UK market. We focus on UK SMEs. There are six million businesses out there. Unfortunately, we haven't. We have a big... Market still to reach out
1: to. Maybe I should ask you in the future plans, but you've got no temptation to address the market in India because, off the top of my head, then India's a little bit larger than the UK.
2: We have looked at the Indian market. We do keep looking at it frequently, but we just feel right now the UK market, where we are positioned, where the market is, there is still a lot we can do in the market before we start spreading our wings.
1: Interesting. Okay, well, we'll come on in the dessert course to Nucleus, but. Diving into the main course, in terms of this in extremis, instant business lending answers, uh, these days we all use phones and computers and all this kind of thing, and uh, uh, having to wait at all is seen as a great imposition. So it's simple in principle, but of course in practice, one of the things that you get by trying to shorten the time it takes to make a decision on anything, whether it's get married whether it's to go on holiday, it's very easy, unless one is skilful, to trade off quality for quantity, i.e. you can make a faster decision, but it may be a worse decision, and um, uh, vice versa. So there's clearly, as I say about an art and a science, there's an art and a science to making not just faster decisions, I mean, old-fashioned banks can make faster decisions, they'll just probably be worse, Um, but to make faster decisions without a great deterioration in the correctness of those decisions, so we say. So, in terms of the background, as, we, uh, as you've explained, it wasn't that long ago. Everything was paper-based. Everything was quite slow. The listeners will have heard of BNPL and probably even their folks and friends who aren't even in banking will have heard of BNPL, buy now, pay later. And in a sense, uh, one can say that this is the B2B equivalent, but if, uh, metaphorically speaking, your niece or nephew was going to go off tomorrow and found a, uh, a rapid lending to SME decision making business in, say, Argentina, where would you suggest they start in terms of understanding how on earth you make a good quality, rapid decision?
2: The speed shouldn't be an impact in the quality of the decision. Because at the end of the day, I think it's worth just coming to, we'll come back to your question, but it's worth going into a bit more detail on this. We we discussed the history of history and how long it used to take for SMEs to get loans. The challenge has always been around data, right? How we get the data, where do we get the data, who provides the data, what is the accuracy of the data? So when we, when we look at Nucleus and many other fintechs out there, the two big challenges we had when we set out was, okay, we want to, it's great, BNPL. There are lots of consumers who have benefited from the BNPL offerings. There is a lot of talk about embedded lending, again on the consumer side. Increasingly, you're hearing embedded lending on the SME side, but there are very few actual solutions that work. And that is the challenge which all of us are trying to solve, right? And some of of us have been more successful than others in solving those challenges. And, And the challenge has been with consumers, you have credit bureaus which provide most of the data you need, to be able to make a decision. With SMEs, that's not the case. Credit bureaus provide a lot of information, but not sufficient information in most cases to be able to decision a deal. We require access to additional information. That additional information is available via public sources, which we have built the tools to readily access. And there are certain pieces of information that we rely on business to provide
1: access. So, starting with the publicly available data then, I mean, again, going back to the old world, I would have thought of, and it still exists to this day, Companies House, where all UK companies are required to file their accounts within n months of the end of the year. But that data, especially in the modern context, is especially for your SME, and it depends on SMEs. I mean, SMEs can be quite small, or they can actually be very large and just not listed companies. That data might, may be an extremely poor guide to the current state. So, you may have a balance sheet, for example, at Companies House that's 18 months out of date, which will frankly be bugger all use in, in making a lending decision for that um, organisation. So, just sticking with the UK, what are the kind of publicly available, decent quality sources of pertinent balance sheet or PNL information of uh, um, SMEs?
2: You don't I mean, You require SMEs to give access and there are a lot of SMEs. I mean, who cannot produce the management accounts? And that's what we have got the tools, right? We use open banking, which like, open banking has been around for a lot longer. More and more businesses are getting comfortable providing open banking access with open banking. They give us read only access to their bank accounts for the last 12 months. It allows us to create a picture on how the business has performed over the last 12 months. Similar to that, we have now got open accounting. With open accounting, it gives us access to the business's accounting software. And it allows us to build their balance sheet and p on a monthly basis since their last filed accounts. I mean, if you look at an open banking journey and an open accounting journey, the both, both of them together can be completed within two minutes. They can provide us access. We get access to that information in a fraction of a second once they have authorized it. And once you have access to that information, it is seconds for us to decision team. And that's what I said. The quick decision is not at the cost of quality of the decision. The speed is improving, but with the data we are getting access to, the quality of the decision is also improving.
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, we've talked about open banking and credit assessment in a very recent Podcast for the consumer sector. The example being that if you've got the last five years of Mike's bank account data day to day and his balances day to day, you'll get some plenty of information about uh, from which you can derive things. Now, the difference between B2B and B2C, uh, which we haven't really looked into in the podcast, is this accounting word that you mentioned. So, if you're a, an individual like you are and like I am, um, we know what our balances are, and we know what our loan payments are, and we know what our bills are, and we know what potential purchases coming up and, and stuff like that. So it's pretty much simple cash flow. Now one of the problems that uh, has existed for some time and has only got way worse, is that accounting has got, like many things in the world, uh, incredibly more complex than it was 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, And there have been some pretty major companies, in the tech sector, not least, um, that have run into problems or gone bust because of the ways that they account for, which, of course, is very different from the sort of personal cash flow, the way they account for revenues or SaaS or, or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I remember, oh, probably even 10, 20 years ago now, when I used to sort of sit in uh, receptions before meetings with... um, some company, I'd look flick through the balance, uh, the, the the annual report and accounts, and it, it meant less and less to me over time. And uh, I remember speaking to a chartered accountant, actually, a professional accountant, but he's not all life being an accountant. And I said, you know, the, these sort of company accounts, they make less and less sense to me. Um, and the chartered accountant said, yes, they make less and less sense to me, <laughs> because there are so many ways of quotes treating, uh, i.e., mapping reality on onto accounts. So. Um, I get to the basic point, which is that if you've got open banking and open accounting data on a company, you're going to have pretty immediate picture of what is now 18 months out of date at a company's house, the balance sheet and Pinel. But what about this whole area, which if I was going to go and think, I know what I'm going to do, I'll give up the podcast tomorrow, I'm going to go and do what Nucleus has done in the UK, in Argentina, I'll move to Buenos Aires, and I shall, uh, I'll do the same thing. I'll be halfway over the Atlantic on on the plane, um, having drunk too much and scratching my head thinking, but hang on, surely the counting treatment means there's a hell of a lot of noise introduced into my understanding of what on earth the company's accounts mean in the first place. So how do you see that from a professional perspective rather than my sort of slightly cartoon version? No, I, I, I don't
2: think it's a cartoon version. You've nailed it. I mean, we are in the world where EBITDA is less important than adjusted EBITDA when companies report. I mean, the whole concept of adjusted eBITDA is moving away from the basic accounting principles. And you've got listed corporations reporting with adjusted EBITDA. So now the things are saying, and that's where I think where with the access to data we get, we as a lender, our focus is on building metrics and building tools which use the data, cross check the data and give us a picture, which is not in the traditional accounting form. We are using the accounting package to get information. We are using the banking data via Open Banking Access. All that data that is coming to us, we are then, we have got the tools in the background to analyze both against each other and come up with certain metrics that show us how liquid the business really is. What is the true turnover of the business? How much of turnover actually gets converted to cash? What time it takes to get converted to cash? What are the true margins that the business has? I mean, really, we are not at that stage fully, but for product businesses, it's about the challenges to try to reverse and work, whether the unit economics for this business makes sense. I mean, can this business ever make money?
1: Interesting. Well, you remind me that uh, i got an investment in a relatively small SME. I've had it for too many decades. Can't get out of it at the moment. But the CEO always writes his letter with the report and accounts or for the AGM or something like that. And he always reports the accounting numbers, but he says, oh, these accounting numbers make less and less sense to me. But look, this is how I look at it. And he looks at it very much on sort of um, on <laughs> very old-fashioned cash basis. You know, we've got this much cash in the bank and it's gone down or up over the last year. And the outlook for the cash is so-and-so. And Zooming out to an even bigger picture um, than that one example, the whole subject of accounting over the centuries is, is interesting and uh, I don't know whether you all know, and I'm sure most of the listeners will not know, and if anybody of the listeners does know, uh, I shall be impressed do, do, do reach out to me because not many people do do. This whole topic of management accounts is an interesting one. We all know what management accounts are if you've been in, a, in any organisation, not just in finance at any senior level, you will see a copy of the monthly management accounts. But why is there this, this distinction between management accounts and accounts? And this very much relates to what you're talking about. And there's a, there's a difference between, you know, annual accounts as done by the accountants, if you're a listed company for sure, or if you're a certain size, and the management accounts. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is that the management accounts, as a phrase, didn't exist before the 19th century in England. Before then, you just had the accounts. And there was one set of accounts which the shareholders saw, and the management saw, and everybody operated the business and ran it off that and understood that. So life was much simpler. Why you got management accounts is a much more complex story to do with uh, the birth of the company law company, which is what we have today, and that was a complete uh, mess-up, one of the biggest mistakes that Gladstone made for a bunch of reasons. What happened in the 19th century is before the 19th century we had chartered companies. Chartered companies were controlled um, and pretty much run by the owners, who delegated to the directors what to do. But in the 19th century, the management accounts came up. And basically, what started from onwards from the 19th century, and you see this in all listed companies today, and it may be a big headache for you that you're trying to solve in your own way, which is that the management started looking at the real information. And the management will present a simplified, periodic version of that to the owners. Now, of course, there's always a bit of an incentive there for the management to have the better quality information and for the shareholders to have something that becomes more and more obscure. So this is is getting on for 200 years old. And then subsequently, in the late 20th century, we've had the same development we see with everything, whether it's tax or law, is that when computers come along, people can make more and more rules and more and more complex stuff. And then with the whole global corporatocracy thing, companies influence the accounting standards. So I'm really interested in your answer to how you approach this At Nucleus, which is that actually you go to the raw data and you basically reconstruct perhaps what the management accounts are showing inside the company, which is something that mixing my metaphors is the kind of information you need to drive the car, which is or or fly an airplane, which is this is the artificial horizon, this is how much fuel we've got left, this is our altitude, you know, very basic data, which is how you actually fly an airplane. So I'm mixing lots of metaphors, but I I don't know whether that relates.
2: I get it. It's, It's about it's really finding out what the facts are, and we can with the amount of data we are getting. We can do that. It helps us make informed decisions.
1: Good. OK, so the answer to the open accounting is that, yes, it's good having open accounting data along with open banking accounting data. And if your nephew slash niece is going off to form a business and do the same thing in Argentina tomorrow, they will need to do the process that you've described there, which is that use, quotes, more raw data to produce parameters which are more relevant to the health of the business using my metaphor, whether the aircraft wings are level, whether it's gaining or losing altitude, how much fuel it's got, and so forth. And interestingly, then, in this case of lending, even to SMEs, the kind of official accounting data that goes to companies' house becomes more and more irrelevant, because it's got all these international conventions attached to it, and it's very out of date anyway, so it's outdating itself. Now, there's a number of elements here, that, if I'm an SME, and you come to me and say, well, look, we can give you better rates, faster decisions or something, if you give us some data, how does that work in terms of you incentivizing me to go to the trouble of authorising you to see my accounting data, which I might be quite defensive about, not least of which because, as I say, shareholders these days don't tend to see the management accounts.
2: This is a million dollar question. This is, a, this is one which we have been working really hard to find a solution for. So if you look at, if someone wants to come and apply for a loan with Naples, the application process for a loan up to 400,000 pounds can take less than 3 minutes, and the decision will be within 1 minute for 90% of the days. So 90% of the people can actually get their decision within within less than 5 minutes. And that's really the objective. The aim is to bring it down lower. And the aim is to get to true BNPL kind of experience for SMEs. To be able to do that, we need access to the business data before they actually come for the loan, which is what BNPL is, because the consumer data access is already there via the bureaus in full detail. We need that level of access with the business data via open banking to be able to achieve that. The challenge it brings is, businesses have started to get comfortable to give access when they need some. The concept of ongoing access to data, most business owners find it obscure. There is no balance they feel where, what are they getting for it? They're running the risks of security, even though it's read only access. Again, the whole point is to be, to be able to achieve a BNPL kind of experience for businesses, we need ongoing access to the business data. So when they are looking for funding, it's available instantly. Businesses have gotten more and more comfortable with sharing data, especially open banking data, when it's part of a loan application. The challenge is that the business owners find it obscure to give continual access to data when they've either already got a loan or don't have a decision in their favor. And that is where the challenge is to bridge that gap. What is the value proposition for the business apart from a future journey which will be very quick and easy? And that's where we, if you look at over the last year, a lot of our effort has been from. We have built the tools to analyze data but how a business is performing and what will be the potential challenges the business could face. The value proposition that we are bringing now for businesses willing to share data is we will share all of that with the business. We have built a product called Pulse where the businesses can see a snapshot of how the businesses performed historically in the recent past and what are the challenges the businesses can potentially face in the short to medium term. So if they give us ongoing access, not only will the loan journeys become a lot simpler, but with the tools we have built, with the tech we have built, we are able to add day-to-day value to the business owners and the business decision makers. We are able to give them a single snapshot, which they can look at in the morning and make key decisions on the business cash flow.
1: Interesting. This is very much extrapolating the theme, which is that if one forgets accountants... (laughs) There have been times in my life when that seemed like a good idea, or forget the finance department, which can sometimes be very useful and sometimes just be busy doing accounting, and there's a, there is a big difference. Then one can actually end up with a better, let's just say, dashboard for the sake of argument, dashboard, whether it's of a car or whether it's an aeroplane, which enables the C-suite, the chief executive for sure, to be able to make better business decisions himself. So I like the idea of going beyond the simple, shall we lend them money, yes or no thing into providing them with the extra added value and starting to undo this loop that started in the 19th century. And, and from a different perspective, actually, having spent a lot of time in my life considering uh, the history of the company and having to finish my book about it sometime, there's an interesting question as to why a company, especially a public company perhaps, should be able to hide its, should we say hide, let's say hide its financial state on any given day. I mean, what is private to BP, for example, that, um, for example, the average citizen shouldn't be able to see? That's an interesting philosophical question that perhaps we'll move over. So one of the points that we didn't mention or raise is the average period of your loans for reasons that will become apparent. So what's the, what's the me- median or whatever the relevant stat is uh, for the length of your loan to an SME? Is it one month, one year, five years? Five years. Right. So... The reason for asking that was, was at hearing you talk, I was remembering the early days of fintech in London that you would have been around for as well, and um, Market Invoice were on the show back in the day, and they've changed their name subsequently. And one of the interesting things that uh, they had was that their invoice financing loans were, I don't know, something like 30-, 60-, or 90-day periods. So compared to the P2Ps that were doing longer-term loans, the good news for them was that they had lots of cycles of being able to measure how well their model was doing in terms of making good decisions. So they could upgrade and change their credit models far faster than the peer-to-peers could do because they had short loans, lots and lots of data coming in, compared to P2Ps if they were lending for longer periods of time. We have to wait years until you found out whether it was the right decision or not. So that was good news. The bad news on the other side was, though, (laughs) because people just borrow for 45 days, you've got all this fuss of getting a client, onboarding them, and then you get your money back in, in 45 days' time. So, ultimately, that held the businesses back because they weren't doing what P2P's were doing, which is, as it were, buying land. P2P's would, would acquire 100 acres for five years and then acquire some more acres and they'd be making money from those acres, whereas um, the other ones would be able to hand the acres back faster. So, if you've got quite a long-term loan, as you have, and you're dependent upon, especially with these ultra-rapid decisions you're dependent upon having a, quotes, good model, and uh, we were watching over lunchtime espresso machines and how you need to tune those during the day to make good coffee. You have the challenge, and I wonder how this is best addressed, of getting sufficiently rapid feedback on your model to know, for example, whether your August 23 model is a better lending model for you, Nucleus, than your January 23 model. Is it 1% better? Is it 10% worse? So how do you approach this whole... Empirical measurement of, of the success. I mean, going back to having overseen the bankers back in the day, a simple thing at Kleinwaltz. you'd have to wait years uh, until you found out, by then it's too late to change the decisions. You know, management has changed anyway. Is, I mean: So
2: we have been, we've been doing this for 12 years now. And when we started, we started with very short-term loans. We were doing invoice finance. but not, not a single invoice finance. We used to offer revolving facilities, so that allowed us to retain clients for a longer period and not have the risk. That market finance used to run with the clients only having one round of funding. So it allows us to retain clients for a lot longer. It allowed us to build a lot of data. Gradually we started offering two-year loans, then three year loans. As we gathered more and more data, we got more and more comfort. Now we are offering five and six year loans. So it is it's been a it's been a journey over the last decade to get that level of comfort to be able to offer it now.
1: Ah, excellent. And we started by talking about the potential trade-off between Speedy decision and the correct outcome. The example being marriage, you can make a quick decision, and there's the old saying, "You can marry in haste, repent at leisure." So, have you got a good feel yourself for the trade-off, if there has been any? Let's say over the last five or ten years, between shortening the period of time of your decisions and whether that's an impacted. How good they are, or maybe they've even got got better. Or I mean, of course, there's lots of noise in this. That you know, every particular year's loan decisions they they will fluctuate, even if everything's fine.
2: We are well positioned to answer this because we run our we run our platform in parallel with manual underwriting for a period of eighteen months, and the tech platform's quicker. It's more accurate, significantly more accurate, and more consistent in decision making. So we, we ran the two processes in parallel to get the comfort. And we are talking about a multiple fold difference in speed and decisioning.
1: Ah, excellent. Unless you're one of the credit officers and you get fired and replaced by a, by a, techie, <laughs> by a techie. And just on that, before you let us have an insight into your ideas about the future of instant decision making, the one thing that perhaps would be interesting to just mention in passing, and again, perhaps I should have put this up front, <laughs> is that SME uh, is, a, is, a, is a three-letter acronym that covers millions of businesses that look massively different. So in terms of getting consistent results from models, I can understand that uh, in order to do this, you can't lend to everybody who calls them themselves an SME, but you actually have to segment within SMEs. Let's say, I don't know, turnover above a million pounds or above 100,000 or something like that. How do you approach the segmentation? So you're getting businesses that, shall we say, have got sufficient momentum that one can make decisions because if you're lending to sort of tiny startups, they just ain't got much momentum and, and whatever model you're doing can be any really good for its five-year outcome because the business will be all over the show by then.
2: No, it's a, it is about having enough businesses in different segments that we have enough data to make our models work efficiently. I mean, the benefit of having been doing it for 12 years and having analysed over 100,000 loan applications and funded over 2.6 billion is we have access to that data to be more granular in terms of how our model works. It's not one model fits all
1: approach. Excellent. Well, at that point, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about uh, Nucleus. But before we wrap up the show, time flies as it always says. I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like the Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theunlistedboard.com your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Chirag, it's been quite some journey, I'm sure. Over a decade is quite a long time in anybody's measure and I like your parallel running of the uh, human credit officer versus your model and the gradual extension of terms. So maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit just briefly about Nucleus and what you're needing more of to be even bigger and better in the future and indeed what your future ideas are and uh, indeed which listeners should be checking you out today.
2: We are a growing fintech supporting UK SMEs. We have lent over 2.6 billion to date. We have analysed over 100,000 loan applications, supported loads of businesses in the UK. We have launched a new platform called Pulse to support businesses on a day-to-day basis with more than lending to help to empower them, analyse their own data to make informed credit decisions. We are increasingly partnering with accountants who are offering Pulse as an additional solution for their clients to make them more aware, to make them more agile. And uh, we are looking to partner with more and more accountants and corporate finance advisors in the UK.
1: Excellent. And roughly how many people are, are you at the moment? We are 140. Excellent. Well, that's been a very clear coverage. I think I'm amazingly impressed that... It is literally minutes. I would have been sceptical about, you know, when 2014, when the podcast started, I would be sceptical about making good quality business decisions in minutes. But the fact that you're still going 12 years later uh, is proof enough in itself that that's possible. And I'm particularly interested that you're pulling out one of the, the two, two themes, one of which I say I noticed about 20 years ago, which is that reporting accounts made less and less sense to me. And I was a certified accountant back in, back in the day. I passed an exam or something like that but also going back to this 19th century idea of the management accounts, giving the management a a better understanding of the business rather than shareholders. So it started quite a long time ago. And I like the fact that you're not just doing the lending decisions, but as you say with your Pulse platform, what good lending decisions come from, of course, is a superior understanding of the business. And again, it is an incredible tribute to you, Chirag, as the entrepreneur and, and founder, and also to Nucleus Commercial Finance, that you're managing to interpret and present the raw data of the company in ways which are perhaps superior to the company's understanding of itself. So I think that's an uh, incredible achievement and I wish you and Nucleus every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contact, in the worlds of both traditional, FS and FinTech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today. Contact me at mike at If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman.
0: We could sit in a all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moonrise Watching a happy moonrise so dead, and the people so sad, come away from the city, with the faces so gray. good goodbye watch the firelight dance with me 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 watch the firelight dance